Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have two good martinis for you today, since we didn't really get around to one yesterday. Uh, Also have a crazy one, which is definitely not good, although the responses to it have been pretty fun. Uh, Jim, let's start with good martini number one. We're exactly one week ahead of midterm election day 2022. And if you've got a whole smattering of polls and indicators that suggest your side's going to do really well, This is a good time of the year to have those news. And so that's what we have today. You do an excellent job of cataloging it all in uh, today's morning jolt. But uh, some of the highlights uh, are a new Wall Street Journal poll, for example, which uh, says, quote, the GOP has seen a shift in its favor among several voter groups, including Latino voters and women. And particularly, this is a big shift, white suburban women. That group, which the pollsters said makes up 20% of the electorate, shifted 26 percentage points away from Democrats since the journal's August poll and now favors the GOP by 15 percentage points. Jim, if that's even close to true, it's going to be a really good night for conservatives and Republican candidates, uh, especially in those critical suburban swing districts in which I happen to be one (laughs) constituent. Uh, But in addition to that, you talk about how Democrats are doing triage here, pumping money into races uh, in districts that Biden won deep into double figures. Uh, We're also seeing polls that uh, show some Republicans solidifying leads. Greg Abbott, for example, up 13 over Beto which means it might even be bigger come election night, which would be really, really fun. So uh, what stands out to you most? And in the aggregate, what does it tell you? There's a lot to unpile here as opposed to unpack them, since apparently I use that phrase too often. So one of the first things that I I looked at was surprised up until a few years ago, if you said to Americans, name a pollster, I bet you they probably would have said Gallup. Uh, Gallup polling was, you know, for a long time, the big name in polling. They don't do head-to-head races anymore. I think they decided it was getting too tough, and I don't know if it was necessarily the in-fitting with how they saw their mission, but they do still ask people about politics, and they ask people, how do you feel about the state of the country? How do you feel about the state of the economy? How do you feel about the president? How do you feel about who's in power? And they just unveiled their uh, latest batch of numbers. And they don't quite ask these questions quite as often as some other pollsters. And the numbers are just abysmal for the Democratic Party. Uh, 40% of Americans approve of the job Joe Biden is doing as president. Just 17% are satisfied with the way things are going in the U.S. 49% described the health of the economy as poor. And just 14% were saying it was excellent or good. Uh, that's probably something the president who insists our economy is strong as hell should uh, should pay attention to. And 21% approve of the job the Democratic-led Congress is doing. Now, That rating of the economy is the worst they've seen since 1994. That rating on national satisfaction, how are you feel about the state of the country, is the worst since 1982. And Gallup notes the congressional and presidential job approval ratings are near their historical low marks. Whatever you think is happening in any particular race, the country from coast to coast is in a really bad mood, and they largely blame Democrats for it. Uh, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal number. You know, Generally, things look good for, for Republicans, but boy, that number about the white suburban women just jumps out there. Also some good numbers for Republicans amongst Latinos. But if white suburban women have moved away from the Democratic Party to the Republicans, that is a dramatic reversal from 2018 and to a certain extent 2020. And that's going to hurt Democrats. One of the other things that I, I've, you see both comments from consultants on campaigns on both the Republican side and Democratic side, 
if Republicans are worried about anything, surprisingly, it's the red states where they feel like their guys eh, might not be up as much as they'd want them to be, um, where they feel they're doing gangbusters and way better than expected are the blue states. Now, maybe this is the consequence of a lot of, you know, Democrat-led governance in places like New York and California and Oregon. But that's where a bunch of these House races are kind of breaking this way towards Republicans. Not the area you'd expect to. And I think one of the things maybe, you know, I can always find a dark lining to every silver cloud. (laughs) These may be seats that are tough to hold one or two cycles from now. But, you know, Kathy Hochul looks like an enormous dead weight to Democrats running for the House in New York. Um, the state of California is not helping them. The crime, you know, the everything we saw in Portland over the last few years is not helping Democrats in Oregon. And maybe even, you know, the the numbers that are not looking great for Patty Murray up in Washington. I don't think she's going to lose, but she's looking much closer than she usually does. So add all that up. There's enormous opportunities in the blue states that Republicans don't usually see in a normal political environment. And then just finally, if you want to say, I don't trust polling, I, I think that, you know, too many people don't answer their phones. Okay, I can see where you're coming from on that. What I think is even more revealing is where parties are spending their money. Democrats are spending very heavily in a bunch of districts that Biden won by 20 points. And in some cases, the incumbents had won by 20 points just two years ago. The flip side of it is you can see vulnerable Republicans in places like California, where in a normal political environment, you'd think, oh, you know, we'd be lucky to hang on to that one. They won last time by their fingernails, uh, where the Democrats just don't have the resources to run TV ads the way they usually do. So Uh, Guys like Mike Garcia are looking more comfortable than they ordinarily would. So add it all up. Looks like a really big red wave year. And oh, by the way, I think the reason, you know, Beto O'Rourke is making a cameo in today's podcast was there's somebody who looked at him, you know, latest poll out has him down by 13. That's a lot. And they pointed out that uh, the previous uh, Democratic candidate uh, who was running before Beto was also lost by 13 points. And that was not a... That was a case where, you know, Greg Abbott was, you know, cruising to re-election and nobody expected Lupe Valdez to, uh, I mean, somebody joked that you know, she was closer to $22 total than the $22 million that Beto's raising. Um, but in fact, he's actually uh, corrected. He's raised $70 million this cycle. You know, if you got $70 million and all that name ID and all that glowing press coverage and all that stuff, and you can't come within 13 points of Greg Abbott, there's this guy as a Texas lawyer, just, you know, some guy on, on Twitter, but he makes a fairly obvious observation that uh, if Beto loses by more than 10, that's the end of his public career. He's lost three races in four years. And he's, you know, at some point, I suppose Republicans would say, no, please keep coming back, Beto. Please keep fundraising. Please keep diverting money away from where it could actually do Democrats some good. But uh, I think I look at that. If you feel like there's always been this wild, crazy, disproportionate height to reality around Beto O'Rourke, this come a week from now, we may be looking at this and saying, wow, it is finally caught up with him in a way that uh, Democrats cannot ignore. You would hope he would learn his lesson at that point. Not thoroughly confident of that, but uh, one would hope so. Jim, uh, if there is a big shift here among suburban women, my gut says it's kitchen table issues plus crime. Uh, would that be your gut as well? Uh, we can throw in, te- you know, in some of those border states, uh, border issues. But yeah, you know, look, the the price inflation has been out of control for more than a year. You know, as bad as inflation has been, grocery prices are up 13% in the past year. Uh, gas prices, yeah, they're down from the June highs, but they're still very high by historical patterns. Everything's expensive. Everybody feels it. Everybody squeezes it. Uh, everybody feels like they're under a squeeze. And, you know, when you hear the president running around saying, ah, oh, the economy's strong as hell, people are just like, well, the only way we get anything changed is by changing who's in charge. And they can't change the president, but they sure as heck can change the Congress. 
One of the things I saw, I think it was a week or two ago, Jim, where I I don't remember which Democrat it was saying, you know, traditionally, this should be a huge, huge year for uh, Republicans. So anything less than a pickup of net 40 in the House is really a win for Democrats, really. They're not going to have the majority, but it's really a win. (laughs) I mean, I guess. (laughs) I mean, are we just talking about in life, you know, (laughs) or are we talking about in elections? (laughs) If you set your expectations low enough, you'll never be disappointed, Jim. That's the lesson here, I think. All right, on to our second good martini now. And uh, turning to one of our rare guests on the three martini lunch. You know, we've had uh, a handful of them over the past year, one of which was New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, who seems to be cruising to re-election in in the Granite State. Uh, He also thinks that uh, the Republicans are going to take the Senate seat there. That uh, might be a bridge too far, but it seems like it's tightening a lot with Don Baldock against Maggie Hassan. And uh, uh, Chris Sununu was on Meet the Press on Sunday, and he was bringing a lot of truth to Chuck Todd because Chuck Todd, as you can hear here, Jim, is just absolutely incredulous that election denialism is not the dominant issue driving people's votes this year. And Chris Sununu is like, no, people are living their lives and noticing things. So that's why they're voting the way they're going to vote. Take a listen. Why are you supporting an election denialist? And, and do you think the inflate, inflation issue is enough uh, to, comp- to sort of rationalize support for somebody who thinks school buses of voters are going to show up in New Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah, let me tell you, you, you're in a bubble, man. I love you, Chuck, but you are in a bubble. If you think anybody is talking about what happened in 2020 or talking about Mar-a-Lago and all that, I know the press loves to talk about it. People are talking about what is happening in their pocketbooks every single day. I, look, I get when that, When they have Governor. to buy groceries or fill should up gas. Or right now, you well, that, that far away. Yeah, over should they denialism. be? Okay. How could they... Of course. Oh, my gosh, Chuck, this is hitting people. They're having trouble paying their mortgage. They're having trouble making car payments because of bad policies out of Washington. Should they be? That is, look, the beauty of the American system is every voter has the right Mm -hmm. and almost the responsibility to be selfish with their vote, to vote in terms of what is best for their family, the better choice for schools, better economic opportunity. And that's exactly what's going to happen in a week, which is why Hassan's going to get fired. A whole bunch of these Democrats are going to get fired because, frankly, folks that think that we're that the average voter is worried about 2020. The average voter, it's a serious issue, of course, but it is not what people are going to be voting on in the next week. And that kind of has baffled me through this whole campaign season. The fact that Democrats keep pushing this stuff and talking about things that aren't really what voters want to hear about, aren't really connecting with the empathetic challenges that the average voter is seeing every day. Jim, I love the fact that he says that Chuck Todd's living in a bubble. I don't know if Chuck Todd doesn't actually think that inflation is a major factor or he's just really trying to distract people into thinking that election issues are and the potential end of democracy are the bigger issues here, despite Democrats, uh, you know, funding the very people they say are trying to undermine democracy during the primaries this year. Uh, So what do you make of uh, Sununu's pushback there? Well, first of all, Greg, we should emphasize that is former Three Martini Lunch podcast guest. Yes. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And that exchange went very well for him. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> if Chuck Todd had been on our podcast, maybe that exchange would have gone better for him. In fact, considering how Sununu is heavily favored for his re-election this November, it is extremely likely, Greg, that the candidates who have appeared on the Three Martini Lunch podcast will have a 100% re-election rate in this <laughs> election cycle. Now, we should note, Joe Lieberman isn't running for anything, and Bob Costas isn't running for anything. But if they had, they'd probably have the advantage because they appeared on our podcast. Uh, look, I, I think 
there's a certain school of thought amongst democrats and amongst some folks in the media who look at january 6th and see it as this enormous deal and look it was a terrifying sight it was a it was a momentous horribly you know disastrous day people were shocked and horrified to see the state of the, the u.s capitol building effectively under siege right and to see cops you know battling with those protesters and the all of that and the, you know clearing them out with smoke bombs and the members of congress you know, look, i'm not saying it was, wasn't very dramatic but also it was nearly two years ago we've had a whole bunch of hearings on this we had books written about it and you know long detailed articles and profile pieces and all kinds of court cases the issue is largely done I, I don't know how much left there is to resolve i know the january 6th committee is going to try to uh subpoena president trump he's going to reject it or ignore it they're going to have a fight about that we'll see if the department of justice chooses to indict president trump uh, you know but by and large the idea that well this is the most important thing and therefore i got to decide whether I vote for my Republican congressman over this or whether I vote for my Democratic congressman over this. It's just not the sort of thing people are going to feel when they go to fill up their tank once a week or maybe more often than that. They're not going to feel it the way they feel grocery prices when they go to put food on the table. If they're worried about crime in their neighborhoods, like that that consumes people's mentality. They're much more, it's been kind of fascinating where you ask certain Democrats, you know, what are you going to do about rising crime rates? And they say, I support the police, primarily the US Capitol Police. They really want to shift the topic back to that, either that or gun control. Well, people are worried about, uh, you know, mass shootings, no doubt. But you know, up in New York City, they keep having the spate of uh, uh, emotionally disturbed, mentally disturbed people pushing people onto subway tracks. And usually it's like senior citizens, people who are vulnerable, people who don't have a good chance of getting out of it before the train uh, comes by. So like, no, what people live in a state of fear, living in a state of terror. You think they can have January 6th on their mind? And today's morning, Joel, I noted, according to CNN, Democrats are making this big push. They really think this is going to be the issue that's going to break through. Really? Do these people shop for their own groceries? Do these people fill up their own tanks? Do they even own cars? Or maybe they, maybe they live in Manhattan. Maybe they live in downtown Washington, D.C., and they don't feel like they need one. But you see how I look at that, just kind of marveling at how you could possibly think that uh, an event that happened two years ago would be more prominent in people's minds than how much it costs to put food on the table. You know, it's 8.2% now, but it's been, you know, north of like six, seven, five percent since the beginning of the year. It's not just inflation just came on. Prices have been high all year. When we see 8.2% the month of September, that's on top of September 2021, which was high compared to September 2020. We're in our second year of high inflation. Do you think January 6th is going to outweigh that in people's minds? So Sununu was totally right on this. And it just, you know, I, I, you know, I generally think, you know, I think better of Chuck Todd than the average conservative probably, but uh, that just seems like you, you know, that, that is a kind of question you ask when you are very much trapped inside the beltway uh, mentality and way of looking at the world. Now, good point. 365 for me to fill up today, Jim, when I filled up the last time before Biden was sworn in 217. So Ron Klain and, and Biden can talk about, ah, coming down. Most common price is 339 Yeah, still nowhere close. When you get it below 217 I'll give you a little pat on the back. And that's not happening anytime soon. In fact, after the election, they're probably going to go soaring back up again. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this could be a whole episode all in and of itself. But uh, there was an article in The Atlantic. Yeah, pause for uh, rolling of eyes. But uh, Emily Oster, I think is how you say that, could be Oster, I guess, uh, has written about um, COVID-related issues in the past, usually from an economic perspective. 
But yesterday, she says it's time for pandemic amnesty, her term, because, quote, we need to forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID. Uh, Jim, you know, she's she's talking mainly about the very early stages of the pandemic, but there's been no admission whatsoever other than Fauci lying about masks, uh, I think, in the beginning, unless he was lying about them afterwards, given the research we've seen on anything other than N95s. But uh, from, you know, the lockdowns on businesses and that economic upheaval, keeping kids out of schools uh, later, once the the vaccine was developed, uh, get the shot if you're a certain type of employee or you're going to lose your job. Uh, You can't go to a funeral for your own loved ones. You can't visit your dying relatives. Oh, but we can take a break for hundreds of thousands of you to gather to protest what happened to George Floyd. Uh, The hypocrisy and on and on and on. Uh, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here. There's so many other things. So uh, detente, not going to happen. So I'm going to make a minute, more than a minute defense. I'm just going to observe Emily Oster or Oster. My apologies for whichever pronunciation is wrong. It appears like she kind of turned into the icon of all COVID-19 pandemic policies. (laughs) And she really shouldn't because she was among those who were writing in July 2020. uh, This is according to a New York Times profile of her written in the middle of 2021. uh, Quote, in July 2020, in the middle of a raging coronavirus pandemic, Oster wrote an opinion essay essay suggesting that schools and child care centers might be able to reopen safely, noting that working parents can't wait around forever. More recently, she has cast doubt on whether students need to wear masks or remain physically distanced at school. So Dr. Oster, she's not a, uh, I think she's an economist. She's not Fauci. She's not um, Gretchen Whitmer. She's not Newsom. She's not uh, Andrew Cuomo. Whichever villain of the pandemic you have in mind, that's not her. And it's a little bit unfair that she's getting whacked around like a pinata for this. That having been said, when she writes this in The Atlantic, which might have been the most COVID paranoia, COVID anxiety, COVID uh, stress-focused publication in America over the last three years, the magazine that wrote what I think might have been one of the most irresponsible headlines of the entire pandemic, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. This was in, let's see, things shut down in March. So I'm going to say like May, maybe June, somewhere you know, in, in late spring when uh, Georgia was allowing people to reopen barbershops and starting to allow people to reopen gyms if they were sufficiently separated and things like that. There was this mentality in the pandemic that we were going to shut down. People were going to stay home. We're going to close the schools. We're going to keep everybody home. Everybody stay six feet apart. Do not, you know, shake hands with your neighbor. Do not visit your relatives in nursing homes. Do not, you know, go in or go over a friend's house. You can't let your friends play with anybody else. And we were just going to stay that way. For as long as it took, which as we now know, it took you know about a year to get the first vaccines rolled out. It was never realistic. And there's something kind of bizarre about this. And there were, you know, there were enough cases. The the guy who got the ticket when he was out uh on the beach uh on, on windsurfing or, or something like that. I'm never gonna forget the footage of the cops dragging the guy off the bus in Philadelphia because he wasn't wearing it. The locked up playgrounds. The sand, the the skate pits in California where they filled it with sand, all the different ways in which people just went, oh, uh, the the nut job in the in the uh, Grim Reaper costume, telling people to stay away from the, the beaches in Florida, you know, with all that sunlight and fresh air and wind 
right? There was a whole bunch of nut job. And, you know, so the idea, oh, an amnesty? No. How about no? You know, besides the usual incredulous, righteously angry, how dare you? My colleague, Michael Brennan Doherty, who's been living in the, you know, the heart of COVID paranoia land in Westchester County, he kind of made this very point. Even, let's assume that you weren't really angry about this. The idea of a COVID amnesty is a really bad way to have accountability for bad decisions and a really bad way to ensure you don't make similar bad decisions in the future. You need accountability. You need consequences. You know, even if the consequences are just, you know what, whether it's Fauci or some state level health official, you know, your decisions, which led to the schools being closed for a year, had really bad consequences. It's you know, here's your gold watch. It's time for you to retire. It's time for somebody else to come in who might have a different attitude towards the cost benefit analysis. And, you know, everybody's saying, oh, you know, well, it looks like that, you know, keeping the cl schools closed for so long. Well, let's remember who wanted to open them, i.e. a whole lot of parents. And let's see who wanted to keep them closed, i.e. almost all the teachers unions. The fact that Randy Weingarten is not, I was going to say she should be more controversial than Kanye, but I'll be honest, Kanye has been setting a really high bar lately. But yeah, Randy Weingarten should be, Democratic candidates should be running away from her, never mind campaigning alongside her. And the idea, oh, well, we're going to have an amnesty. We're going to, oh, let's let, let bygones be bygones. No, this is what life is about. You make decisions and then there are consequences from those decisions. And then you know, what happened? You take a look. Did it work or did it not work out? We had a whole bunch of bad consequences for our, our policies. And, you know, yes, I, I'm more forgiving of an overreaction in March 2020. We didn't really know what we were doing. Maybe into April. So we got into sp late spring, summer, fall. It was very clear distance learning wasn't working for our kids. Private schools reopened real quick. Did they have a mass die-off in public schools? No, they did not. Teachers who did not have found it too risky were dumped at. And by the way, the most unacceptable part was that once they started getting the vaccines rolled out, a lot of states said, you know what, teachers, you go to the front of the line. I had no objection to that. I wanted those schools reopened. I want my kids' teachers to feel safe. But once you get that vaccine, you better get your butt into the school. You want to wear a mask? Go wear a mask. You want to take whatever precautions are necessary. You never know who's immunocompromised or something like that. Fine. But get your butt into the school so that we can get the kids' butts into the schools. And we can try to address this learning loss that occurred because people decided for a year, ah, we can't send kids to school. So no, no amnesty. But then again, you think about immigration. That's kind of our general policy on a lot of things. No, no, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Gretchen Whitmer in passing and that Emily Oster is not... Gretchen Whitmer, but yeah, I forgot to mention nursing homes, roping off specific aisles and stores. And my, I think my personal favorite in Michigan is you weren't allowed to have an independent company come and cut your grass, whether you went outside to talk to them or not. It was just insane. And, and she's just one of the officials, Cuomo, Newsom, I mean, a lot of them, even further down at the local level, who Jim was pretty obvious, relished the power grabs that they were doing over this. And uh, there needs to be a reckoning over it. And I don't think it's coming because at this point in our politics, nobody's going to ever admit they were wrong about anything. That's all I have, Greg, is a, a Michael Brennan Doherty-esque long sigh. <laughs> Probably the appropriate one. Because Actually, hang on, let me put a mask on before I do that. <laughs> We're still not out of it yet. There was, I think it was Kathleen Parker who was just saying that, you know, if you're not wearing a mask now, you're uh, putting Charlie Crist said he might go back. I mean, he, you, know, you know, he's Mr. Popularity down there in Florida. But, <laughs> yes. Uh... Charlie Crist is going to have a lot of free time to wear as many masks as he wants soon, hopefully. Uh, Jim, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please tell your friends about us as well. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming if you haven't done it yet. Uh, it's, it is a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Remember to go out and buy Jim's new book. Holidays are coming up. Great gift. Gathering Five Storms is the novel, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday. And please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. You know, sometimes you can't depend on big media organizations to cover all of the important news of the day. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how this historic political divide we're in has Democrats pulling all sorts of last-minute stunts to get votes before the midterm elections. Download and subscribe to my daily podcast. I don't talk about every single story of the day, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.